So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we're joined by author, historian and professor of English at Arizona State University, Patrick Bixby, about his book with University of California Press. Also, thank you for them for sending me a copy. License to Travel, A Cultural History of the Passport. Now, I really, really enjoyed reading Patrick's book. I think it's an important study that we should be learning more about and engaging more with in everyday life. So how are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. No, no worries at all. I think, you know, it's it's like I just said, it's an important topic for us to, to discuss. Uh, passports have been a contentious issue here in the UK for the past couple of years. Uh, <laughs> but I've run into question... a few uh, uh, British travellers in the last couple of years who weren't too happy about having to you know stand in the same line with me uh, when they're travelling in the EU and so forth. So, yes. Yeah, and, you know, some people are even commenting about the colour as well. So we can different people have different opinions on passports. <laughs> Indeed. So I wanted to start off by asking you a first question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. What was the inspiration behind you writing this book? Well, there were a number of things. I think to uh, develop the momentum to write a book, there has to be more than one good reason. Uh, I suppose it started with my own travels, though. I've had a number of experiences with lost, stolen well-used passports um, that taught me rather viscerally just how uh, much personal importance a passport can have, just how much emotional energy gets attached to those documents. But my my day job, as it were, is as a scholar of modernist literature. And I was familiar from my studies with the importance that passports have had for a number of modernist writers, James Joyce, uh, Langston Hughes, Gertrude Stein, folks like that who were among the first generation to travel under our current passport regime with the universalized standards that emerged after the First World War. So um, those two factors got me started. Uh, But as I began to look more closely at the cultural history of passports specifically, I realized not just how important they were in personal or individual terms, for the individuals who hold them, but also in broader political terms. So the history of the passport, as it turns out, and this is probably no surprise for anyone who's thought about this at any length, is linked to the rise of the nation state, the construction of modern citizenship, the evolution of international relations, concerns about government surveillance, and so on and so forth. So um, although the document is, is a modern phenomenon in many ways, its history, as you know from exposure to the book dates back millennia, but it uh, has become more and more part of what it means to be a subject of a modern nation state. So uh, all of those factors came together. Um, And the the other thing, I suppose, was that as I was doing this research, the, uh, the stories that attached themselves to people's passports seemed particularly compelling. Uh, you know, loaded with with uh, emotional energy, as I mentioned, but, you know, linked to their fate uh, in their careers, in their personal lives, um, you know, where, where they can go, what they can do, what they can dream of uh, was often linked to their passport. So uh, as a cultural historian who wants to tell stories that get us at bigger concepts, but also have... Uh, an effective or emotional component that moved the reader perhaps in some way. This seemed like a, a perfect subject matter. So I was kind of hooked once I figured that out. 
and and you can tell that you you enjoyed writing it and that you were hooked when reading the book because you know the amount of as you say the, the amount of cultural references and, and 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 the authors that you're bringing in their relationship with their passport is is really quite compelling as you're going through but you know some of these authors are perhaps more modern um maybe household names to some people but i want to go back to the beginning so where does the the history of the passport begin and how do the concepts of citizenship and belonging interlink with that Right. Um, well, there's sort of a two-part question, so I'll take one piece at a time. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Most of the histories of the passport that you'll come across, whether it's scholarly studies or journalistic pieces online, what have you, usually locate the beginnings of the passport in, in the Old Testament, to, to the book of Nehemiah, to be specific, um, dating back to 445 BCE, more or less, depending on which scholars you believe. So um, that's where I began, but poking around a little bit more. And I had some help here. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that in my uh, academic institution, I'm in an interdisciplinary unit. So I'm down the hall from classicists, from historians, from philosophers, um, folks who know a lot more about some of this stuff than I do. So once I you know, found a few clues, I could go down the hall and knock on a door and uh, get an expert's insight. And that would invariably lead me to other things. So um, that process led me to uh, some documents, which are ar arguably the oldest documents um, to come down to us at any rate, involved in international relations. These are the Amarna tablets that date all the way back to the 14th century BCE, so another millennium earlier than the book of Nehemiah. And those documents, they take the form of, of clay tablets um, inscribed with cuneiform letters. Um, served a function actually quite like our modern passport in some ways. They often accompanied messengers uh, traveling outside a sovereign domain in North Africa during that period um, to uh, ensure safe passage so that they could engage in whatever diplomatic duties that they were conducting for, for the king. So in this case, the, this early document, which is called EA30 in the, in the records, um, is uh, from King Tushrata of Mitanni, and it's to protect his envoy who's traveling into another kingdom. And the, the most striking thing, and the thing that makes it uh, a close cousin to our modern documents is it contains a kind of command, um, basically ordering uh, anyone who encounters this messenger to leave him alone, or he will have to deal with the sovereign power of, of the king. So it's a, a command, maybe even a threat. Uh, and most modern passports, and I have my U.S. passport here. I've also scribbled some notes. I think I might actually read this text because it's, it's interesting in this context. Um, they contain a similar kind of message. So a U.S. passport, my passport, says, The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom who may concern to permit the citizen slash national of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of any need to give all lawful aid and protection. So this is an order of sorts from the uh, Secretary of State of the U.S. to treat the passport holder, in most cases a U.S. citizen, well when he travels abroad. So that was uh, a function of the passport that dates back some 3,500 years to these early clay documents that were used um, with very specific purposes uh, diplomatic purposes, but that 
function has adhered to our travel documents ever since. And then the citizenship question. So that brings us back to the book of, of Nehemiah, at least in, in my uh, recounting of this. So um, the book of Nehemiah, it, it tells the story of Nehemiah's request to King Artaxerxes for this uh, safe passage document so that he can go back to Judea to rebuild the walls of uh, his native city. And um, once he arrives there, he sets up uh, a new government uh, and conducts a census, institutes new laws and so forth in an effort to, to reunite the people of the city and to rebuild the walls around the city uh, in order to uh, restore kind of coherence that had been lost in his absence. Of course, in doing so, he establishes a form of citizenship. The inhabitants of the city all have that status that binds them together. But that is also an exclusive form of citizenship. Of course, citizenship entails a kind of exclusivity, of course, because um, it only includes the folks within the walls who are distinguished from everyone else beyond the walls. So uh, I investigate that and actually bring that to the present. Uh, I don't know if we'll go into detail about that, but some of the ways that the book of Nehemiah has actually been used recently to reaffirm notions of citizenship in the U.S. against our near neighbors on the other side of a wall. Um, but then I also talk about uh, uh, concepts of citizenship from ancient Greece and ancient Rome, all as a way of sort of laying the groundwork for how these documents will impl be implicated with notions of citizenship when we enter into the, the modern era. It's really interesting to hear, like, whilst these events are you know, happening millennia before we stand here, that they're still relevant and they're still, you know, the very concepts of them still in the passports today, particularly, you know, Secretary of State's uh, wanting to guarantee you have safe passage and uh, no obstacles to your passage, um, but also those same extracts being used in arguments today. But how does, how and when then does the the passport in inverted commas become symbolic in a wider sense? Well, I mean, that does date back to the very beginnings of the passport too, I suppose. Um, the story I tell in the book is about the uh, Athenian Agora excavations, which took place in the early 1970s, during which some uh, terracotta tokens were unearthed that functioned much like the uh, clay tablets in ancient Egypt. They were used to send messengers out to the outposts of the empire uh, beyond the, the city of Athens to protect them along the way, to give them a kind of credential that would ensure their safe passage. But the, the word used for those uh, little terracotta coins uh, was symbolon, which Greek for symbol, uh, combining sin together and balo, throw or put, so thrown together. Uh, and um, there is uh, much commentary, in fact, in the ancient record about the use of these kinds of documents, linking it with their symbolic function, that they uh, provide the holder with a certain status by virtue of the symbolic function housed in that little terracotta coin or token. So um, from the very beginning, this is uh, part of the story. Um, but bringing things closer to the present, 
Um, I tell the story of Frederick Douglass, the great American uh, of the 19th century, whose um, story of, of emancipation, of fleeing from slavery, and then finally asserting his own citizenship is very much bound up in these kinds of travel documents. He escaped slavery by using a pass from a free black sailor, impersonating that individual in order to um, make his transit north and to escape from bondage. Um, later in life, he uh, requested a passport for travel to France. This was in the late 1850s. He made that request of the U.S. minister in London. In fact, he had made his way across the Atlantic, but now he wanted to travel to France. But because of a recent assassination attempt on Napoleon III, there was a tightening of uh, travel uh, restrictions. And so he made this request of the U.S. minister there, uh, George M. Dallas, after whom many things in the U.S. are named. So he, he remains um, a known entity, but he treated Frederick Douglass very poorly. <laughs> Let's put it that way. He refused him a passport. And of course, he refused him on the passport of the grounds that he was not a U.S. citizen because he was a black man. Um, he was drawing on the recent Dred Scott decision of 1857, which uh, asserted that uh, people of African descent were not to be included amongst citizens as the Constitution defined them in the United States. So Dallas asserts that um, recent Supreme Court finding in order to deny Douglas a passport. But this story has a happy ending. Um, this is one of the, the stories I like most in the entire book in some ways, in fact, because um, about 25, 30 years later, Douglas was getting ready to go off on his second honeymoon with um, his new wife, recently remarried after the uh, deceased, the death of his first wife. And uh, he went off on that honeymoon with a passport, which he applied for himself in Washington, D.C. And he was able to sign for his own citizenship because by that time, Dred Scott decision had been nullified. But also he uh, was famous enough, well known enough that he could vouch for his own citizenship. And that was sufficient. And uh, th there's a wonderful passage in his, his last autobiography, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, where he tells the story of all of this. And it's quite clear that he, he still uh, felt the wound of that earlier denial. So this is many years later. He's nearly 70 years old now. This is his first passport, though. And he sees it not just as an implement for travel to ease his transit across the Atlantic and through Europe. He goes on a grand tour across the entire continent. But uh, affirmation of his citizenship. And so he the symbolic value of that document as an affirmation of his citizenship is what is most valuable to him, far more than the practical value of what it will allow him to do as a traveler. And the wonderful thing about that story is that he goes off on this grand tour, which he describes in great detail with uh, brilliant insights along the way, but then he never mentions the passport again because he's settled the matter. So. I think it's really, you know, across those two different cases you just mentioned, there's there's those themes of belonging and those those themes of, you know, uh, citizenship and inclusion, but there's also themes of exclusion. But I, I certainly, you know, I certainly agree with you that those, those Frederick Douglass stories that you bring into your book were certainly some of my favourite as well, because the way that he describes the importance of it and the, the role of travel documents within his story are just, it's so powerful 
reading about it and you know for someone who's always had a passport you kind of ignore it and you're like oh you don't recognize the importance of it until you see the experience of someone who hasn't had one absolutely and and that's been my experience not only researching the book but speaking with people afterwards uh, passports hold this kind of emotional charge not just for those who possess them you we um, who have, let's say, powerful passports, this is a, a language we can get into later if you like, but ones that allow us visa-free travel to most of the world usually attach a kind of affection to the document. It reminds us of where we've been, the people we've met, the experiences that we've gathered. And um, you know, while we might uh, get anxious if we can't find it for a moment or, or if it's about to expire and we're going off on a trip, what have you, um, generally speaking, it's got this positive set of associations. But for folks in other parts of the world who don't have that ease of mobility, um, getting a passport, of course, can be uh, a very trying experience. And then even having a passport, but one that requires a visa to travel to most of the world, um, doesn't have that kind of positive emotional association, then, you know, it's, it's, it's something, it's a problem that needs to be dealt with anytime anyone wants to cross a border and they can expect, you know, to be pulled aside and questioned, turned away, required extra documentation and so on and so forth. So yeah, passports have this broad spectrum of significance for their holders and, and those who desire to hold them. And, you know, talking about, you know, the, the memory and, and the cultural uh, significance of these i kind of want to go back to another figure who who is a you know well-known traveler um and uh, perhaps someone that our audience might have already heard of uh, it's marco polo so could you tell us something about the the cultural memory and the history of ta- uh, travel documents uh, and and the importance of his travels for that yeah, I was surprised to learn uh, in doing my research that Marco Polo had something like a passport um, during the you know the late medieval period. Um, so, uh, but he wasn't actually the, the first in his family line to possess this kind of document. So, those who know the story know that his father and uncle went off to the Far East before he did, and uh, they ingratiated themselves to the the great Khans, the rulers of the Mongolian Empire at the time. And uh, as was the practice then, to ease travel uh, across the Silk Road, they were given these uh, golden tablets. Um, Some actually survived, not the ones that belonged to the Polos, but they're they're remarkable objects in themselves, um, called uh, paises in Chinese. I'm sure my pronunciation isn't perfect, but close enough. Or uh, jerejes in um, Mongolian. And these uh, golden tablets uh, allowed them to travel back to Venice, um, kept them safe along the way because they were, much as those earlier clay tablets I mentioned, a sign of sovereign protection, that they had the goodwill of the ruler on their side and anyone who messed with them was going to face the consequences. now, th- that system, which was widely implemented ac- across the Silk Road, was prone to uh, various forms of corruption and so forth. As you might imagine, the- these powers attached to the, d- the tablets were abused by local dignitaries and so forth. But that's another story. At any rate, when um, the 
two uh, older polos return to Venice and they you know, bring Marco on his famous journey. Um, you know, so that journey doesn't happen without those passports, right? They probably don't get back safely to set off on this much more famous journey without them. But then when it came time for the three polos, including Marco now, to return home um, 26 years later uh, or so, um, they received similar tablets now from um, uh, Kublai Khan, who uh, sent them home uh, reluctantly. He was quite fond of them, apparently. By the time all of this is um, a bit hazy in the historical record, but uh, that's the consensus. Um, and they were able to make their way back to Venice. And of course, then Polo was able to, um, to tell his story to uh, Rusticello in the prison and, you know, the famous um, scene of his uh, writing the travels of Marco Polo. But none of that, again, happens without these travel documents. And again, with this story, there's a kind of epilogue, which is maybe more interesting than the rest of it. And that is um, 30 years after Marco returns from the Far East on his deathbed, uh, a priest is called to take his final confession. But the practice then was for the priest to essentially write out the will of the individual who was facing death. Um, and apparently, as the story is told, uh, Polo's family members were also wanting a kind of confession um, about the, the nature of his travels. Had he really done all the things that he uh, had said he had done um, there was still some doubt apparently about that. So uh, in that moment, he uh, writes out his will and his will includes a number of objects that he had collected in the Far East, which were evidence as it were that he had made those travels. And those also included these tablets. Um, the will of his uncle Maffeo also includes these tablets. So there is, although the tablets themselves are lost to history, there is uh, documentation beyond what Polo had written about in his travels. So um, both Maffeo and Marco had kept these objects until the end of their lives. Um, and we can only imagine you know, the reasons for that. Uh, you know, One, to prove to their doubters, I suppose, that they had gone to these places and done these things. Um, also, you know, the sense of, of freedom of movement that those things must have supplied, right? The evidence of the, the cons power that you carried with you as a traveler. And, you know, personal mementos, souvenirs of a sort, you know, to recall uh, in later days the adventures that they'd had. So um, all functions that our modern passports possess for some, as we mentioned earlier, but um, I think it's quite clear that, you know, they, they had monetary value. These things were made of gold, but they didn't sell them off. They kept them until the end of their lives. And, and I think some of those reasons must help to explain that. Yeah, you can, you can certainly imagine a Marco Polo in some kind of tavern or pub or whatever they had there trying to oh, i did go look uh so <laughs> exactly but you, you you've touched on a really po uh, interesting point there about freedom of movement and that that kind of ties into ideas of border control so how what why does the idea of border control arise uh, and how does the passport uh you know aside from obvious reasons how does the passport play a role in that well, that's that's a complicated one, right? Because border control in some form dates back to antiquity, of course. Um, but border control that is enabled by travel documents, 
there are instances of that in the Silk Road in the Han Dynasty, as far back as that. But something like what we would recognize really dates back to the birth of the nation state at the end of the 18th century, coming out of the French Revolution. And uh, one, one of the, the I, I might say, the great historian of the passport is John Torpy, an American sociologist who's written a book called The Invention of the Passport. And he describes the um, French Revolution as the birth of the nation state and locates the uh, emergence of the passport in that moment, precisely because it's linked to the functioning of a modern nation state. So in France, it's a very complicated story. We don't have to get into the whole French Revolution, but coming out of that conflict, there are enhanced measures to, to track foreign nationals in the country, to register citizens, to um, engage in the kind of governmental surveillance with the technologies available that we know today in our nation states. So, um, and that includes various forms of border control using documents. So that's where it begins, I suppose. Um, and it is, of course, closely linked with the, the birth of the nation state because the nation state is the entity that wants to control uh, migration uh, as we know it. Now, the other um, highlight in that story, I suppose, is the First World War. The modern passport emerges during that conflict. In fact, the, the use of passports has kind of waned in the late 19th century. They were a luxury item. They uh, facilitated certain activities, but they weren't required. During the First World War, requirements began to emerge precisely to control the movement of foreign nationals across national borders to protect the homeland from espionage and sabotage and so forth. So um, you have the modern passport with photographs and personal descriptions and national affiliations like we would recognize in our own passports being implemented at that time precisely for border control in a time of conflict. And and how important is the League of Nations within that process? Well, the League of Nations um, gave us the modern passport, essentially. So various forms of uh, something like a modern passport emerged during the war, but they are only formalized and standardized after the war in a meeting of the League of Nations in 1920. So just a year after the end of the conflict, you have a meeting specifically dedicated to the passport as a uh, of, you know, form of managing geopolitics, really. And um, a couple of things come out of that. One is that the passport regime is solidified. It is going to be part of what it means to be a nation state, to be part of the international order from then on. Um, and that's despite a lot of criticism coming from, well, I talk about a number of artists who didn't like it too much because it prevented them from traveling to see their friends and engaging in cultural activities and so forth. But uh, on a sort of macro scale, there was concern that it would get in the way of the economic recovery coming out of the war, that it would slow international relations, that it would compl complicate diplomacy and so forth. But despite all of that, the League of Nations steps in, solidifies the system, and standardizes the format of the passport. So the standards are slightly different than they are today, but you have a, a booklet with 30-odd pages with the uh, descriptive details about the individual, a photograph, and so on and so forth. So um, those early passports are 
close cousins to the ones we use today. Uh, and those are a direct outcome of this meeting of the League of Nations. It's really quite interesting to see how, you know, conflict uh, and the need to protect or, you know, include people within the nation state or include them within some kind of concept of citizenship is is still there from those early days. But you're talking about uh, the artists uh, and the, the great thinkers of that period. You know, what do these passport holders, these new passport holders, think about their new sense of identity or their current sense of identity when it came to their passports? Well, maybe a few little stories would be the best way to answer that because there, there is not one answer for everyone, right? There's a, a variety of responses, um, but I'll, I'll share quickly a couple of my favorites, I suppose, from the book. Um, Ernest Hemingway uh, apparently filled out a passport application in the early 1930s a little bit too quickly and messily so that when it was received, um, the passport processing clerk read off his occupation, not as writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, but waiter, W-A-I-R-T-E-R. And as you can imagine, Hemingway, proud man that he was, didn't like that too much. And he wrote a rather scathing letter back to the uh, officials responsible for his passport application, um, indicating it would be very difficult for him to conduct business and travel the way that he wanted to and so forth if he was identified as a lowly restaurant employee. <laughs> so his identity, his professional identity, was very much bound up in that document. Um, so lots of other stories. One other that I might tell, which kind of uh, stretches the bounds of this and suggests the ways that passports can be used to, to craft an identity or manufacture an identity, um, a story I tell much later in the book about Sun Ra, the um, jazz musician, born uh, Herman Poole Blount, or Blunt, um, who uh, had created the stage persona of a kind of intergalactic jazz visionary, a sort of precursor to what we know as Afrofuturism now. Um, but that persona wasn't just a stage persona. In the early 70s, uh, he was preparing to go off to Europe for his first tour of the continent with his um, his band, the Interplanetary Band, as he called it. Um, and he went to the passport office in New York City and applied for his passport under his stage name, Sun Ra, with this Egyptian um, resonances, and uh, indicated his place of birth as Saturn and so forth. In the... Amazing thing about this story, which is recounted by uh, Ra's biographer in some detail, is that um, sort of hounding the passport officials and returning to the office on more than one occasion, he was able to get someone to sign off on this. And so for the next decade, he traveled with a passport indicating his name as Sun Ra, his place of birth is Saturn and so forth. And it became part of his his stage persona, but also um, was a kind of affirmation of his um, invented sense of self, which wasn't limited by the internecine racial politics of the U.S. and so forth, which sort of transcended all of that, but what was given the imprimatur of the U.S. government because it was housed in his passport. I, I loved reading those stories going through the book. I thought they were quite funny, but they also showed you know, how much people or how much people tie themselves to these these documents. 
But there was a there was another document that emerged uh, in the in the post war period, which is the visa. Now, for something like as we've already we touched on with powerful powerful passports, and perhaps we can touch on that a little bit more here. You know, this this visa, whilst it can be a pain for some people and 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 be relatively easy for others, you know, what is this this extra document, and and when does the use of it kind of begin? Well, in some ways, it's a matter of semantics. So the the travel documents that were used, um, say in the 18th century, were uh, far less formal than the ones we use now. Um, they could be produced by a government official or by some high-ranking individual, or a well-known friend, uh, and so forth. Could sort of you know write a letter vouching for you, and that would serve the purpose. So those had a kind of visa function as well, um, because they allowed you to enter into a certain domain. They were usually written by someone in the country you were visiting. So in that sense, they had a visa-like function. But in in the modern era, or even if we want to talk about today, the, the situation is is interesting, tragic in some ways, but but interesting. So um, there are a number of passport indexes that one can you know, Google those and, and find them online that rank the power of passports according to their uh, ability to travel visa free. Um, they can go across borders without prior approval from the uh, host nation. Um, and the disparity between the highest ranking passports and the lowest ranking passports, we alluded to this earlier, is often referred to as the mobility gap. So at the top of the rankings, countries like Germany, Japan, United Arab Emirates has been at the top of those rankings uh, in recent years. At the bottom, countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, and so forth. So those top countries can go to more than 90% of the 193 recognized UN recognized nations and territories. The ones at the bottom of that ranking, fewer than 40 countries. So th- there is this massive gap between 180 or so and 40 or so countries. And that's all down to the visa, to that extra bit of permission that one requires to travel. Although there are now um, new regulations uh, being instituted in the U.S., in the U.K., in Canada, and so forth that requires something like a visa light, <laughs> this extra um, bit of, um, of permission, usually processed electronically and very rapidly, but required nonetheless for someone who's traveling, even, even from the U.S. to the U.K., this is going to be the case. It's already and has been the case for quite some time for folks coming from Europe to the U.S., so, um, yeah, there are nation states always inventing new ways to slow international mobility and to try to control the flow of people for, for obvious national security reasons. But it has these knock on effects in people's personal lives and their economic well-being and so forth that are usually unintended consequences. It's, in, it's interesting to see, you know, that, that index and that disparity between the ones at the top and the ones at the bottom. But that kind of leads me on to to people who are below those those bottom ranking passports uh because you know as many of us know the 20th century was you know riddled with conflict from the uh, like the beginning till till the end and it kind of gave rise to this concept of statelessness so what was what is this kind of concept of statelessness and and how do 
how do the victims of this concept kind of deal with the consequences of it? Well, that's another legacy of the First World War, right? So the breakup of the Russian, Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires, you have hundreds of thousands of people displaced from their home countries and without valid passports. So these new demands for state sovereignty that arise out of the uh, First World War and the various treaties that, that realign Europe leave out these enormous populations who no longer have a home. Their birthright has been severed from whatever nation they were born in, and they're cut loose from the, the so-called family of nations. Uh, and without proper travel documents, they may not be able to return home. They might may not be able to work in their host country. They're in this kind of diplomatic limbo, if you like. So, um, a number of efforts were made to address this situation. The most famous and perhaps the most interesting one is the so-called Nansen passport, named after Friedhof Nansen, the Norwegian uh, Renaissance man. He was a zoologist, explorer, historian, professor, and so forth. But after the war, he turned humanitarian and statesman and uh, in charge of the refugee efforts of the League of Nations. He became the commissioner shortly after the war. He created these passports, which wasn't actually one document, but a whole series of documents issued by different nation states, which adhered to the guidelines that he laid out. He actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for this, um, which gave travelers or you know displaced peoples of, of all sorts across Europe some kind of official status, which would, again, allow them to return home, to cross borders within Europe, to get a job where they resided. Um, so it was meant to be of great benefit, although there are some very famous uh, nonsense passport holders who griped quite a bit about their function. Um, Vladimir Nabokov most famously um, complained that he was treated like a criminal every time he arrived at a border with a nonsense passport. So it wasn't much better than being without such documentation. Um, so uh, the, the history of statelessness in the 20th century and the history of the modern passport are very closely intertwined yes and it's it's great to see different parties trying to get involved in that and then try and create something that allows the victims of this to to move on and try and get on with their lives even though some people obviously didn't like it and had had gripes of it but there's also and i think this is my favorite part of your book there there's also another type of passport that you discuss which is fantasy passports which I thought were absolutely fascinating. So could you tell us what these are and, and, and how they're used and so on? Well, there, there's a whole range of them, again, but the, the general category includes documents that will not be stamped with a visa. So the, the U.S. State Department, but also the European Union, has a, a list of these documents which in most cases are not attached to a recognized nation state, but issued by some other entity or organization um, for the purpose of travel, but also for symbolic purposes that I'll try to address. Um, so uh, a famous example of this kind of document is the so-called world passport. This is still issued. In fact, I went ahead and got one uh, as part of my research and your listeners could do the same uh, easy enough to Google they're um, issued by the World Service Authority, which is an organization that was founded by an individual named Gary Davis, who was uh, 
an American soldier in the Second World War uh, witnessed the bombings of Dresden and decided that this was a kind of condemnation of the nation state as an idea. So not long after the war, he renounced his U.S. citizenship. He did this at the U.N. operations in Paris. And um, as a kind of parallel and competing entity, he founded this World Service Authority as a kind of counterpart to the U.N. Because he thought, you know, the U.N. is not going to do away with the nation state. It depends on that concept, on that reality in order to function. So um, he founds this organization. They begin issuing passports, birth certificates, marriage licenses, and other sorts of documentation. Um, and these documents, as won't be any kind of surprise, are mostly symbolic. They're a gesture towards a, a critique of the nation state as a historical entity. Um, although apparently some individuals have been able to cross borders, they've sent these to many uh, refugees and migrants uh, from the Middle East who in some limited cases have actually been able to use them. Uh, folks like Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, even Barack Obama have been issued these, not at their own request, but by Gary Davis and his team. Gary Davis has passed away recently. but um, So that's one kind of fantasy passport. This is issued by this kind of alternative to the nation state as a gesture of critique. Um, maybe more interesting, certainly more efficacious in some ways are passports that are issued by unrecognized nation states, let's say. So the uh, Aboriginal nations of Australia, for instance, issue their own passports, which again have been used for travel in some limited cases um, as a symbolic gesture of uh, criticism against the treatment of Aboriginals by the Australian nation state. Um, in North America, we have the Haudenosaunee uh, passport, which is issued by the Iroquois Nation for their um, citizens to travel beyond the, the bounds of the Iroquois Nation. Um, it's bound up in some very interesting stories with the lacrosse team, uh, which uh, has attempted to use those documents to travel to overseas tournaments on a number of occasions, quite famously in uh, 2010 when uh, Hillary Clinton as the um, uh, Secretary of State had to step in and, and help them to get to the UK. Um, and they see that as an affirmation of the status of their nation state as being equal to all other recognized nation states. But in that case, also as an affirmation of their eligibility to play the sport for as representatives of that nation state. So that they, they make a very strong claim to the, the value of those documents, although the international community has uh, largely uh, failed to recognize that, as, as is the case with the Aboriginal passports. And yet again, it's, 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 it's nice to see those, those same concepts of belonging, inclusion, uh, and also exclusion uh, in the case of the world passport, excluding yourself from those nation states to be a wider collective carrying on for millennia uh, throughout the history of this, uh, the, of the cultural history of the passport, really. Yes, I mean, the, the starting point for this book, which we discussed at the outset, is this intermingling of the personal and the political. In this document that many of us possess, 
is a kind of material realization of that personal political connection, right? My passport with its stamps and so forth tells me something about where I've been, what I've done. My own biography, in a sense, is inscribed in the pages of that passport, including all my personal details um, and my photograph and so forth. But it ties me into the, the network of nation states and border control and national and international surveillance and so forth. You know, on the cover is not my picture. It's the insignia of the nation state inside as uh, we saw with the U.S. passport is the, the legalese of the nation state, which states its claims in the international community, but also in relation to its own citizens or subjects. So uh, the passport is at the very center of those kinds of discussions on a global scale because it is a document that is required universally. Everyone who wants to move around the globe save some sovereigns. Queen of England apparently didn't have to. The new king will not have to have a passport. Um, but the rest of us have to have those documents in order to travel. And uh, therefore, we're always pulled back into those, you know, very uh, strong, sometimes violent, often emotionally laden connections with these broader institutional or political concerns. And and having having traveled myself you know you can you can feel that whenever you go through some of these gates and you can see you know whilst i've got a powerful passport you can see the, like we said earlier you can see the emotion tied to people with less powerful passports if they're unable to, to travel as easily as their family members who might have a slightly more powerful passport but i'm moving on to the final fun question now as I do for all the guests on the the history of jackson podcast now i was i was looking through your Instagram as I was doing some research for this episode. And I saw that you have seen so many different types of passports uh, and you must have come across even more throughout your research. Uh, which do you think has been, or for you anyway, which has been the coolest design that you've seen? Well, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes over the millennia. Um, but if we if we talk about current ones, I would say that the Scandinavians kind of take the cake. So the Norwegian passport, uh, it's, you know, the sort of minimalist Scandinavian design that we might expect, uh, a matte finish, and then these beautiful pictures of fjords and lakes and forests and mountains inside on the stamping pages, which fluoresce if they're, uh, you know, shined with an ultraviolet light. The Swedish passport is, is much the same in that regard. But the, the most fun one, I suppose, is probably the Finnish passport. It does both of these one better. Its stamping pages form a, a kinograph, so you can flip the pages. And as you do, it creates the effect of a moose walking across the bottom of the passport. So, you know, it's animation of these things with slightly different images on each page. So it's a bit of a toy, even this uh, <laughs> Finnish passport, and it's it's you know sort of widely recognized for that bit of of whimsy that's bound up into the passport. And of course, the Finnish passport's a nicely powerful one as well. So, lots of reasons to have a Finnish passport. At least it gives the holders something to do whilst they're waiting to present <laughs> it. <laughs> while you're waiting in line, precisely. Yeah. Now, obviously, people are going to want to go away and grab a copy of your book and interact with you online. So where can they find your book and, and interact with you? Well, the book's in all the obvious places. Amazon would be a good place to grab it. Um, or even better, perhaps go to the University of California Press website 
purchase it directly from them. A little more money supporting their efforts is always good in the scholarly publishing space. Um, I've done a lot of podcast interviews about the book, so people could you know search Spotify or, or Apple podcasts and, and find me talking about this and other books, actually. Um, I, I am probably one of the few people on the planet left who doesn't have their own podcast, but <laughs> I don't. But as you mentioned, I do have an Instagram page and I'm uh, interested in building a following there more than I have. I, I tried to rope my 17-year-old daughter into being my social media manager and she's having nothing of it. So I'm, I'm limping along with my Skills. So if people want to look for me at patrick.bixby at Instagram, I'm posting, you know, vintage passports, uh, information about my publications and appearances and in my own travels, of course, there. So that would be one way to connect. Yeah. And I'll make sure a link for the script, uh, link for your book is in the description below. And I certainly go, I certainly go recommend following Patrick because you've been posting some amazing uh, posts recently, you know, translations of your book, new, new uh, passport designs. It's a, it's a great account to go follow. Oh, cool. Thank you. That's all right. And thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast, Patrick. My pleasure, Jackson. Thanks for having me. That's all right. There we go.